all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. You're listening to a podcast of Relatively Speaking on MPB Think Radio. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning and listening. This is Relatively Speaking, the show all about you and your family. I'm Dr. Susan Butcher, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. So April is Autism Awareness Month, and as I think everyone knows, autism has become a disorder that is relatively common. So today we'll be talking about what it is, what it is not, some of the reasons why the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder still comes later than it should and why it's so important that it's diagnosed early. I'll also go over some interesting, very recent research that is helping us better understand exactly what autism is. We'll review some information about why autism spectrum disorder may be more common in girls than we ever thought in the past and why maybe it's often misdiagnosed in girls. So this is a great time for you to call in. If you've had some experiences with your child or a family member who has autism or perhaps you have some questions about whether or not someone you care about could have autism, if you have that, please do call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's 877-672-7464. Or you can, could send an email to family at mpbonline.org. And I'm also delighted to say that we have Pam Dollar with us, who is uh, an incredible parent child advocate. She's back with us. She's been with us before, and certainly whenever we talk about autism, we bring Pam Dollar in. She is the executive director of the Mississippi Parent Training and Information Center and also the executive director of the Mississippi Coalition for Citizens um, uh, with Disabilities. So, uh, Pam, I welcome. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be on the show with us again. Oh, uh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you. And and I know you wanted me to give out the number, so uh, perhaps some um, family members or friends could call in with their comments, thoughts. And so I'm going to give the number again. Um, it's one eight seven seven mpb ring It's 877-672-7464. So, Pam, before I, I turn to you, because I have, I, I hope you'll share some of your 
your personal and your professional experiences for the listeners. Um, but but I just want to remind everybody some very basics. We're not going to go into a lot of detail about what autism is, but, but I want to go through some of the basics. Um, it is a neurobiologic developmental condition that can impact communication, sensory processing, and social interactions. That's sort of the broad swath. You can, there is a huge variation in the disorder. And, you know, recent research has certainly advanced the understanding of autism, but we've got a lot more to learn. Um, I, I think those of you who are older probably remember back in in the early days of our knowledge in autism, um, even in the 1990s, we were still not very good at recognizing what autism was and what it's not. And um, you know, back in the day, there were other names like pervasive developmental disorder, Asperger's syndrome, autism, and then the childhood disintegrative disorder. So researchers and neurologists and psychiatrists got together and said, you know, <laughs> there's so much overlap in all these areas that as they were reorganizing the diagnostic criteria and everything for autism, they lumped it all under an umbrella. So basically, we now call it autism spectrum disorder. And I think it just recognizes that that there is a spectrum. And so I know it's still confusing to some people. And if you have any questions, we can certainly um, talk through that. Um, the other thing I really want us to talk about today as we're moving along is that the incidence of autism, gosh, when I first started working in developmental behavioral peds, it was thought to be around 1 in 10,000. And then the numbers kept dropping 1 in 5,000. Um, then back in the early 2000s, it was 1 in 1,000. And now it is upwards somewhere between 1 in 44 for boys and 1 in 54, 55 for girls uh, or for the overall population. And so um, lots of changes. Now, does that mean we're, there's much more autism? Does that mean that something has changed about the genetics or does it mean that we're better at recognizing it? Um, well, we've looked at that, and it's probably both. It is probably both. But what I what I really want us to talk about is yes, why the increase? Um, it again is perhaps there's something going on environmentally. Um, perhaps something going on that's affecting genetics. You know, we've talked about epigenetics in the past, and that means what is happening. So we're born with our set of genes, right? And then the environment can affect the way our genes perform. And so maybe um, there's something going on there. And then the other thing I want to talk about is 
that girls and boys probably look different um, who have autism. Girls typically have less repetitive and stereotypic behaviors than boys do. That repetitive behavior of hand flapping and um, twirling and that kind of thing, girls tend to have less of that. So people sometimes think, well, if you don't see those kinds of behaviors, then it can't be autism. And that is not true. So as we're moving along, I want us to talk about all of this. And then um, in the second half of the show, we'll talk a little bit more about the interesting research as we move along. But um, Michelle um, McAdoo, our producer, is with us today, and I wanted to just say hi to Michelle also because I know Michelle is involved in the area of mental behavioral health. And so, Michelle, I know you want to jump in some and ask questions too. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Pam. Thank you for being with us today. I know you work uh, with children in this field um, as well and advocate for awareness. And thank you for being here today, Dr. Buttress. You've been in this field for a long time. Um, I do want to ask a question to both of you guys. Uh, Do you see a lot of uh, misdiagnosis with um, autism, meaning some children uh, are... Uh, diagnosed with behavior issues when it's not or mental health issues when it's not. And do you see a lot of that and how can we um, offset that or how can we lessen the misdiagnosis of autism? Yeah. Pam, um, I'll take a stab at that first and then I want to turn it over to you because I know you often deal with families who are struggling to try to get a diagnosis or Perhaps when they get a diagnosis and think that the providers are wrong. But but I will say that, you know, as the prevalence of autism was rising, there was a lot of concern about misdiagnosis. So um, the things that we try to remind everyone about is that there are some hallmarks that, that really must be there. Um, when you're making the diagnosis of autism. It's communication deficits is, is way up at the top, and that is with verbal and nonverbal communication. So that means not just speech-language delay, but also not being able to read others' expressions, uh, not being able to read body language, Um, having difficulty understanding perhaps um, um, idioms and nuances of language, not reading voice tones and that kind of thing, okay? The other thing is uh, restricted repertoire of interest. So so typically um, some obsessive sort of behavioral uh, interest where um, overly interested in in one area can't get off the topic, repetitively talking about that, and and um, the like, and then the the repetitive and stereotypic behaviors are there, but often more subtle in girls and boys. So those are the things. Now keep in mind: Did you hear me say anything about having an intellectual disability? I didn't. 
And that is not a requirement for having autism spectrum disorder. So sometimes that confused. Sometimes an individual who is terribly depressed or environmentally deprived may look like they have autism because um, of their mental health state. So that can do something. A child who has severe receptive and expressive language disorders also. Um, so, Pam, I'm going to turn it over to you. I know I said a whole lot that you might want to tag on to. And um, so what are, what are your thoughts? Well, no, I think you're exactly right. And what I will say is my son is 30 years old now. So we were actually very lucky and got a, got his diagnosis when he was two, which was almost unheard of 28 years ago. And, and even now when I look back at his diagnostic report, um, it said he appears to have some type of autistic disorder. And so I do think that we have gotten much, much better at diagnosing and also we have more expertise in our state now. I, if I remember correctly, and Dr. Butcher, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but for years we only had maybe two developmental pediatricians in the state, one of which was you and maybe one other. Um, and now through the work of Dr. Butcher and, and the K Clinic and, and all the different initiatives at UMMC, we have several more, still not enough, but um, and you yeah. really need to, and you really need to. I mean, I, I always encourage parents. Well, first of all, I, I think the best diagnostic approach is a team approach, but also, you know, there really does need to be a developmental pediatrician involved that understands all the other type because there's other other dis, disorders. Uh, like fetal alcohol syndrome that can mimic autism and make it look, but you really need somebody who has that professional expertise. Yeah. 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 Um, we actually, Pam, still only have three practicing board-certified developmental behavioral pediatricians, but what we do have are, are many more highly trained individual psychologists who can help with the diagnosis and, uh, and therapists. Well, let's jump to the phones. We have um, Jennifer and Brandon, who I want to get to before we take our first break. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for calling. Hi. How are you? Great. Tell us what your question or thoughts are. Um, I agree with both of you. Um, I mainly work with adults. I was a special education teacher for... 13 years, and I have two children, five and nine, um, that have been diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. Um, and I think in my work what I've seen is uh, I in, I meet a lot of adults that were not diagnosed as children, and so um, they're having difficulty navigating life, but they're also having difficulty getting the diagnosis that they need because um there's not enough practitioners to work with adults. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think that is something that I know Pam has worked on and, and I have uh, tried also to, to 
help groom individuals to be comfortable um, as adult physicians taking care of individuals with autism spectrum disorder because just because you reach 21 doesn't mean autism goes away, right, Pam? And um, you might have some comments on that um, also because I know you have been trying to work on transitioning individuals with autism into adulthood and making sure they continue to get their services. Yeah, absolutely. And it is one of the the biggest, well, I mean, there are lots of needs in our state around autism, but um, the adult population, uh, I know parents feel like it's hard when their students are in school and there are lots of challenges. But once they reach adulthood, there are, you know, an exit out of school at usually around age 20 or 21. Um, there's actually very, very few services. There are years-long waiting lists for supports in the community. There's a, a intellectual and developmental disability Medicaid waiver that um, most people with autism can qualify for but there's a 10-year waiting list to get on that waiver, which would provide, you know, community-based supports, uh, you know, respite for the family, um, a job coach if that's what they need. Um, the, the Mississippi Department of Rehab Services provides job coaches, but only for a short period of time. So if they need someone, if they're able to be employed that they need support on the job, then, you know, they need those long-term supports. And so there's just so many needs out there. And, and I'm, it seems like lately I'm getting more and more calls from, from families that are frustrated because of the lack of services for adults on the yeah. spectrum. And then also lots of behavior issues um, that there's the supports just aren't there to help families work through the behavior challenges. Right, right. I know we need to go to our first break, but um, when we get back, I really do want us to talk more about about that very thing. And um, and Jennifer, I don't know if you if you want to hang on. If you have any further questions, um, certainly hang on. But we're going to take that break. We're talking about autism spectrum disorder, making sure that we understand what it is and know how to access services that are there but we'll talk more about maybe what we do to expand those services give us a call one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four we'll be back hi i'm dr susan buttress with a mindful minute Children grow up so fast, before you know it, they'll be starting kindergarten. A good way to watch for school readiness is to mark developmental milestones like talking in sentences, counting, writing, and playing well with others. Positive adult-child relationships are key to helping children meet these milestones. You already have the tools you need. Talking, singing, and reading are fun ways to help children learn and thrive. One way to celebrate these special moments is to use a milestone checklist. Healthcare providers are also a great resource to help make sure your child's on the mark and ready for the next step. 
Examples of developmental milestones, fun family activities, and additional resources can be found at MississippiThrive.com. Much has happened, there's much new knowledge, but as we were talking about before the break, there's still not enough services going on, and our state legislature has 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 done a pretty good job about trying to increase some funds and um, making sure that the services are there, but we have a long way to go. We were talking about the fact that the the Medicaid waiver for individuals as they move into adulthood to be able to obtain services that are so very needed is back up. There's a 10-year waiting period. That is not acceptable. 10 years is way too long. Um, uh, Jennifer, I know you, you are hanging on and Greg from Hernando, but um, Pam, Let's do you what do we need to do? What do we need to advocate for increasing the number of waivers? It just seems like we need to do something, right? Exactly what we need to do because the federal money is there, but our state has to appropriate the they have to fund the state's part of that. And we actually have the highest Medicaid match in the nation. So for every one dollar that our state puts in, the federal government, I believe, um, I think I have my numbers right, but I, they they put at least three dollars for every one dollar, and you may know that better, Dr. Buttress, what our state's match rate is, but I believe it's at least three to one. So yeah, I um, think you're, uh, yeah, um, but you're you're exactly right. I think that that is. We have just got to access better because I, unless you live with with an individual with autism spectrum, I believe you probably don't understand how difficult it can be. Um, Jennifer, I, I, I told you to hang on, so go ahead, and then uh, we'll get to you, Greg, in just a minute. Jennifer, did you have some other questions or thoughts? Um, I just think Pam's exactly right. Um, right now, you know, we do have the 1915I that was, originally created to assist individuals with autism um, that might not meet every qualification for IDD waiver. But the problem with that waiver is they still have to meet that institutional level of care. And there are some um, that may have 125 IQ, but they cannot, um, they don't have the functional skills to be independent and require some type of supervision and support. And so I think that's right. kind of where we are missing the mark um, is those individuals are falling by the wayside, especially once their caregiver passes away, um, they have no one. Right, right. And that's something that we need to make sure that um, families understand the need to be sure to have somebody who is going to be a guardian who is going to watch over that individual. And, you know, I know in, in legal terms that's been discussed many times and on, on, on this show also the need to, to do advanced planning. So thanks for bringing that up, um, Jennifer. Well, and well, can I say one other thing, Dr. Betches? 
Um, sure. You know, I I hear over and over as far as funding these home and community this Medicaid waiver that provides those home and community based supports, and the purpose of those waivers is so that people don't have to go live at an institution, which the numbers on that are, you know, it costs around one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year to, on average, to serve someone in an institution. Um, and on an average, now everybody's needs are different, but on an average of around thirty to forty thousand dollars to serve them in the community, that's if they have an intellectual developmental disability. And so, what I say to people is, our state can't afford to not do this because it's it's so much less expensive to serve someone if you just want to look at just the money part of it. Um, it's so much uh, less costly to serve someone in the community. Um, than it is that if they don't get those community supports, they're, they often have wind up having to go live at an institution, which is way more costly to our state. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for calling, and um, good luck in obtaining all the services you need. Um, Greg from Hernando has been patiently waiting. Hi, Greg. Hello. Yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. I have a, a severely autistic son. Uh, we had, uh, had Foster and adopted when he was two. He was born very prematurely, 26 weeks gestation, and uh, is also severe developmental delay. He's nonverbal. Uh, he grew past. He looked like a nine-month-old infant at two years old, but he got off heart monitor, off oxygen, off feeding tube, started eating, uh, had, was very delayed in everything. He started walking when he was six, still nonverbal. He understands some of what you say. He goes to a local special needs uh, school, you know, in the special needs area. But he's been self-injurious, and this is very common in severe autism. 30 to 50% of the people, I think, are self-injurious in some way. He is hitting himself in the face and it's not because he's bad he's it's almost seizure like he might be playing and just bam you know hit himself but but right. as he's grown older he's 13 now and he's really uh, uh you know about 90 pounds and uh he's able to bust his lip you know on the second or third blow type thing and uh you know risperidone helped for five years it quit working we had another combination He's with a great doctor with 30 years' experience, but he's he's hitting too much, and it's almost where you can't take him care of him at home. But along the lines of what y'all are discussing, I just had a second time to have him evaluated at North Mississippi Regional in Oxford. Uh, you do that when he's 10, just thinking in case when he's 21, he might have to go live in a group home or something. But with all the debate, you know, he, he doesn't sleep at night, only a few hours at a time, and he hits way more often. So they reevaluate him again last Monday. And, you know, he does qualify for some more things now, but they didn't give me much hope that he would get them anytime soon, like more help in the home or, you know, we did sign him up for the possibility of, of living at the Oxford main campus or a couple of private uh, group homes like, one in McGee area, but uh, but they said, you know, we don't want you to have much hope that this will happen, or certainly that will happen anytime soon, and the list is long, 
the approvals are slow, a committee does that, I don't know. But it's just, it, it is frustrating to not be able to get the services readily that would be helpful when when you're in a crisis situation almost as a parent. You know, it's just the medicines are not working. We have tried so, so many. And when something does work, it'll work a couple of weeks. And then I call it a false start. You know, it'll, he'll go back to hitting. After. So I don't know if you can interject anything, but I just want to echo, yes, the, the problem in Mississippi – for getting help is it's it's difficult. I'm I'm very fortunate to live where there's a great school system and the school has helped him tremendously in DeSoto County. But uh, the the other services it, it's very very hard to get. Yeah, Greg, you're pointing out why we need um, to increase these services. We've just got to make sure that we pay providers who do this work um, what. The work is worth um, because that's one issue that we have is the the payment levels are low. The other is that we have got to expand the waivers so that more people can access this um, service. And, you know, we've got to do a better job on early intervention because we know the earlier we start working with these behaviors, the better off children will be. Now, it does sound like your son has severe severe autism plus an intellectual disability so that makes it so much harder and and sometimes um, you know behavioral intervention can be helpful in addition um, to to the medication but but also Greg to make sure that you have I'm sure it sounds like I know you're in a good area um, a psychiatrist who can perhaps help with this if not a developmental uh, behavioral pediatrician or both, um, because sometimes it is complex, and sometimes um, a, a medication combination can be helpful. So, I would um, I'd be happy uh, to. We also have a wonderful service through Champ. It's a grant um, where you can get a, a psychiatrist in real time. Um, and your provider could access that psychiatrist by calling the CHAMP line, and I'll make sure we put that on our website when we finish this show, and we'll also have it on the podcast. Okay. Thanks, Greg, for calling, and, and hopefully Thank we you. can get help. Okay. Um, I just I just want to point out, you know, just as a feeling like a child advocate, I know Pam will say the same thing, um, anyone who's listening to this who feels like we need to expand the services, please go ahead and call your um, state legislator. Um, let them know that you are really interested in this. I know our lieutenant governor has done a lot of good work in this area, and so call and let him know how much in support you are of this. Okay, um, let's stay on the phone. Sue has been very patient from Beaumont. Hey, Sue. Good morning. How you doing? <laughs> I'd like to make a comment about Medicaid waiver. Uh, yes. Don't get hooked up with Medicaid waiver. They will take when Medicaid waiver will take your house, your car, whatever's in your bank account, your deed, your place. They will take everything you've got, your, your savings, your check, and everything. They'll take everything uh, to pay for their services. So if you want to lose everything you've got. 
hook up with Medicaid waiver. That's how they get paid is by taking everything you have. I got oh. disentangled from them, but it was a bad trip. What um, Pam comments on that? Well, I do think that um, it's it's really important to work with, you know, and I know some families, they don't have the resources to go and meet with a, an estate planning attorney or whatever, but if you do, um, it is important to understand that there are some asset recovery provisions in the Medicaid law, so I think that may be what um, she's referring to, that mm-hmm. if you, um, you know, there are income, you have, uh, you access these waivers by being eligible for Medicaid, which, you know, unless most, most people on the autism spectrum probably, you know, don't have a lot of assets unless they have a very wealthy family where they have a trust fund or something, but... So once they become an adult, their eligibility for Medicaid is based on their their income, their assets. And so it's just real important to do appropriate financial planning. Like for my son, we will we haven't done it yet, and I, um, it's one of those things I keep putting on the back burner, and I can't continue to do that because he's not getting any younger, no. and we're not either. But um, getting him a, there's a special needs trust that you can set up so that when the parents pass away, any the home or any assets that the parents have go into the trust and their assets of the trust so that then they, the, the person with the disability doesn't lose their, their Medicaid eligibility because the asset limit for Medicaid is very low. And so um, if there is a home, it's just I'm, I know many people that are listening probably have dealt with that with the nursing home thing with elderly people. But um, it is really important to do some financial planning to make sure that you don't deal with that asset recovery aspect. Okay. Thank you for bringing that up because people do know, need to know about the, the sometimes financial pitfalls that you can get into. So um, thanks for going over that, Pam. Um, I do have the champ line number, Greg. Hopefully you're still listening. And for all of our listeners, you can give this to your primary care provider if y'all need any help with any kind of behavioral or mental health issue. It's 601-984-2080. Okay. I'm going to stay on the phone. Sandy from Laurel. Hi, Sandy. Thank you for waiting. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate all the information you're giving us. Uh, We don't have enough information for people in our situation. Um, I have a daughter that's 33. She still lives with myself and uh, her stepfather. Uh, It was only recently that I realized in the last two or three years that she had uh, after somebody commented and get, getting different uh, information from people that that I know that uh, that she had autism spectrum disorder, she's probably high end. Um, mm-hmm. I also believe that maybe she has Asperger's, but she's been fired from every job she's tried. It's just because she doesn't pick up on the cues uh, and mm-hmm. she doesn't have the ability to. 
understand. She takes everything at face value that people tell her, so you don't pick up on the cues of social behavior from other people, and thus she's had problems uh, working. She's only worked in retail um, as cashiers, and so coming in contact with people all the time. Um, I don't know where the first place is that I need to uh, that I need to go to find out. I've tried several different venues to try and find someone to diagnose her, but that's the most difficult thing that I've run into. Uh, do you have suggestions? Um, I do. At, in the adult population, I would say you need to have a psychiatrist or a psychologist who is well-versed in the area of autism. Um, most psychiatrists are. Um, all psychologists are are taught in the area, but um, some don't don't do the formal testing for it. And so, um, I would encourage you um, to to look first to an adult psychiatrist, make an appointment, and um, discuss this with them. I I know sometimes that's hard. And um, so I know at UMC we have some ec uh, excellent psychiatry department, and and perhaps they they could help you. And I can the main number for UMC is six zero one nine eight four one thousand, and you can ask for uh, the Department of Psychiatry to get further information. But um, I don't if that helps. But this is so. Often this happens, um, Sandy, with with young women and young girls. And girls are almost always, unless it's very severe autism, diagnosed much later because um, it, girl, the 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 like I said, the repetitive behaviors are not as prevalent all the time, and and many times um, the the Many times, boys with autism will react differently to to like the sensory issues that bother them in a more aggressive way and get more loudly upset. Where girls, many times, and again, this is a broad generalization, but girls many times will will be be less aggressive, less violent, less self-injurious, but more withdrawn and more anxious. And so it gets misinterpreted as being a different type of mental health issue. Please. One thing that I would um, encourage in this them to do if they have not been connected with the Mississippi Department of Rehab Services um, as far as the help with job skills and trying to help with employment, um, I would strongly encourage you, and I don't believe you have to have a actual diagnosis for, you know, for help through the Mississippi Department of Rehab Services. And I can get their number really quickly. I think what we'll do is is go to break, and um, when we come back, Sandy, we'll have that uh, for okay. you. Thank okay. you. Um, good luck. Again, um, you know, for the, if you do need a diagnosis, probably start with psychiatrist. We will be right back.
Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress with a Mindful Minute. Children grow up so fast, before you know it, they'll be starting kindergarten. A good way to watch for school readiness is to mark developmental milestones like talking in sentences, counting, writing, and playing well with others. Positive adult-child relationships are key to helping children meet these milestones. You already have the tools you need. Talking, singing, and reading are fun ways to help children learn and thrive. One way to celebrate these special moments is to use a milestone checklist. Healthcare providers are also a great resource to help make sure your child's on the mark and ready for the next step. Examples of developmental milestones, fun family activities, and additional resources can be found at MississippiThrive.com. Welcome back. It is relatively speaking. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, and here with Pam Dollar. We are talking about autism spectrum disorder, and uh, we've talked a lot about some of the difficulties that parents who have children who have moved into adulthood are struggling to get get services. Um, we also have Fletch, who has been patiently waiting from Greenwood. Hi, Fletch. Good morning. I just wanted to add to the uh, discussion with the opportunities for employment with um, autism spectrum and and or other challenges. Um, mm-hmm. Voc rehab definitely is an opportunity, and along with vocational rehab, Goodwill Industries works uh, with Voc rehab. Even those that don't go through vocational rehab, Goodwill Industries is a job creator uh, and a home for those with uh, with challenges, perhaps like autism. Oh, that's a, a a great thing to bring up. Do you have any any particular number that people should? Um, yes, they call? can call the they can call the Goodwill Main Office in Ridgeland at six zero one eight five three eight one one zero, and uh, there's locations throughout Central Mississippi, including Hattiesburg, um, for opportunities uh, like that. That's that's great information. Do you work in that area, Fletch? Um, I volunteer with them some, um, but have heard a number of the mission moments uh, of the families and or the individuals uh, that, that found a home uh, for, for work there when they didn't feel like they fit in and were appreciated in other situations. And with that, uh, caller's, um, that caller's child who always was, you know, customer-facing at the retail, uh, it just may not be uh, her, her interest or her skills to do so. And there's other opportunities, uh, you know, off the off the customer facing areas. A- absolutely. And the the last caller, that he's exactly right. Goodwill is a wonderful resource, and they, which is exactly why I, any donations that I give, as far as you know, when I'm cleaning out my closet or we're, you know, you know, getting rid of furniture or whatever it might be, I always make sure I donate that to Goodwill. But um. I, I do have that number for the Department of Rehab Services, if you want me to give that or if you'd just rather me That'd provide it. Yeah, okay, okay, that number, the number to the Department of Rehab Services is 800-443-1000. And, 
And then I also wanted to mention that um, at the Department of Rehab Services, they have an autism program coordinator in their agency, and her name is Jennifer Jackson. And um, she, her email, and she got she gave me permission to give out her email. It's J Jackson, just like the city of Jackson, um, at mdrs.ms.gov. And so, if somebody's needing help from them, it might be best to contact Jennifer first, and then she can, you know, refer to whatever regional office, and she can follow the case and make sure that, you know, things progress as they should. Okay, that's great information, too. So we will have all of this information with the podcast posted. So um, anyone who wasn't able to pick up on any of these different numbers, we will have them all and also Jennifer Jackson's um, information. And Pam, if it's okay with you, um, I know you mostly are working with um, parent education and parent advocacy. Um, I know your organization helps when parents are struggling with getting appropriate IEPs or don't have uh, their individualized education plan for their spe- child special services. Your group helps with that, right? That's exactly right. And our number is 601-969-0601. And I want to say, it seems like this whole show went toward the adult, you know, realm when there are lots of needs, but there there are also lots of needs for young children. And, you know, I don't want anyone to get the impression that we don't need to be addressing issues around early childhood or those kinds of things because they're definitely a lots of need in those areas as well oh absolutely and i think you know we just have about a minute left in the show and i will i will just say that um i think we need to dedicate another show during this month to to autism for this very reason because there's so many needs that that i really do want us to to talk about that early recognition because early recognition is key to having the very best outcome and there's good information out there that shows that with some children, you can see signs and symptoms as, as early um, as in the first year. So mm-hmm. with that said, I want to thank all of our callers. And Pam, I want to thank, thank you so very much, as always, for all the wonderful work you do and for always jumping in to help me out on this show when you can. So absolutely. <laughs> If you want to hear this show again or any past episodes, listen to the podcast on your favorite podcast app by searching Southern Remedy Relatively Speaking. Like I said, we'll have all these numbers and um, email addresses. This show is a production of MPB Think Radio, engineered by Michelle McAdoo. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, and I hope you'll join us next Tuesday. I think we'll talk more about autism at 11 for Relatively Speaking and that you'll stay tuned for NPR. Here and now, coming up next, right here on MPB Think Radio.